Okay, I'm used to the camp director's voice anyways, and perhaps you can hear me more. But I'm excited to be with you here today. And um, it's my privilege to be here and to uh, fill in in the place of Pastor Paul, who's taking some much-needed holiday time. So he's away on holidays for a little bit, and uh, it's my privilege to, to fill in for him. And I've chosen a portion of Scripture that has uh, filled my heart with fire and set me uh, on a passionate journey to want to follow Christ even more as a result. And I'm excited to be able to share that with you this morning. The Bible clearly teaches that we were created to have a personal relationship with God. The kind of intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before they chose to disobey God and to eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result, the sin entered the world and mankind experienced relational separation. The intimacy was gone, but God provided ways to connect through sacrificial systems, uh, which foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who took our sin and bore our sin in his body on the cross. God wants each of us to be restored to the same type of intimate, personal, deep relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. And um, I'm here this morning to talk to you a little bit about developing that very thing this morning. And I'm excited. It's my prayer that you would be as well. But real life smacks us in the square in the face. We experience pressures of every kind on every side of our lives, whether they be family, work, finances, or life in general. Those challenges impact us in every area. Many of us are familiar with suffering, as we've heard Gord pray for those who are suffering because of physical issues. And others are suffering because of mental and emotional issues. Fear is, uh, of the future often grips us in significant ways as the uncertainty looms. Many of us are fearful, especially in light of the political unrest that's seen all around the world. I did not realize the severity of the, the famines until I saw the news this week that they're talking about the, the, the UN said it's the worst famine in their history that's experienced in in North Central Africa. And here we sit enjoying our lives. The question is not whether we will face pressures, but how we will respond when we do. In light of this, I'd like to share with you a psalm that has become very meaningful to me. It's Psalm 63. If you'd like to turn within your Bibles, you can do that. We'll be doing that. It'll also be on the screen, so that's okay if you, if you don't do that. This song, or psalm, was known by the early church as the morning song of the early church. Because they would sing it first thing in the morning. And it's interesting, I've been making a habit lately of doing the same thing. The first thing when I wake up is I say verse 1 over and over again. (laughs) And uh, it's been incredibly impacting for me as I've done that. But before we look at the actual psalm, we have to understand the context of the psalm. What, what was it all about? What was the situation? So Psalm 63, we see the context or the setting 
If you wanted to read it in your Bibles, it would be in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 17. And uh, we obviously don't have time to read all three of those chapters, so let me give you a brief summary of that. God had promised for years that David would become king in the place of Saul, who had turned his back on God, who was the first king of Israel. And uh, he found himself hiding from Saul who wanted to kill him and was often running into the wilderness to escape him. Finally, King Saul died and David became king. And he began to reign in Jerusalem and experienced peace. But unknown, unknown to David, a conspiracy had been developing. His son Absalom and his trusted counselor Ahithophel, which is a hard name to say, developed a conspiracy against him. You see, what would happen is is, uh, Absalom would stand by the gate of the city while the travelers who would come to see the king, who was often busy with many things, I suspect, and he would meet the traveler and says, what's your business? And they'd have this conversation, and the traveler would say, I would like to see the king because I have this issue. And, and uh, Absalom would respond and say, oh, if only I was king, I'd be able to deal with that issue. And then if I was appointed judge, and he won the hearts of the people. I'm not sure what happened in David's life. That's beyond at this time why he was not aware of this, but it was happening. So the conspiracy develops and David hears of it. And he grabs uh, uh, a few things and some of his loyal people and his servants and he flees into the wilderness of Judah a dry wasteland south of Jerusalem and I have two photos I'd like to show you of that area to give you some idea of what it was like the first photo you can see looks actually like a barren desert and really it's hills with not much vegetation a dry and desolate place I've had the privilege in my life of being twice in the Holy Land And I can wonder how anyone could ever possibly live in that environment. The second photo is of uh, the road to Jericho. Um, This is one of the wadis or the the ravines that uh, were between Jerusalem and Jericho that travelers would have to pass. Just showing showing it to you to be able to show how desolate and dry of a place that would have been to live in this area. When I think of the wilderness, personally, my mind, and maybe it's like yours, I think of the Ontario bush. But it's far, far different than that. And that's why context is important. So how did this affect David? What was the impact on him? Physically, we know he was tired, worn out, thirsty, in the middle of a wasteland. 2 Samuel 16, 14 says that they arrived exhausted, And in chapter 17, some of the men, other men met him and helped him out and brought food and supplies. And the people, they said this of the people, the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. You can imagine what it was like. Not only that, can you stop and imagine, sometimes we read scripture and I'm a big advocate of trying to put yourself in place of what it would be like. Can you imagine if your own son had plotted the actual coup? And your trusted counselor, the one that you you lean to for advice, was part of the group that experienced that. 
emotionally, that must have been heart-wrenching. Or spiritually, we know that he longed for the sanctuary. We were saying, better is one day in the presence of the Lord. The sanctuary, the, the temple represented all of who God was. And there was a special presence on that, that spot in Jerusalem. And he had to leave all of that behind. And even the Ark of the Covenant, which they started to take with them, he actually sent Zadok the priest back into Jerusalem with the, with the, to, to the temple. It must have been heart-wrenching to be separated in that way. Because that place symbolized and represented his relationship with God. Stop and think. How would you feel? How do you feel in difficult and uncertain circumstances? Perhaps even now you are currently facing those. If you live long enough, you'll you'll begin to develop nagging physical issues. We will all die at some point from something physical, most likely unless the Lord comes back. And it's difficult to focus when you don't feel 100%. Or emotionally, do we ever get depressed or struggle with mental health issues? The long days of the winter don't help. And actually this morning it was hard to get up in the, in the dark. I was just used to getting, getting, I get up between 6 and 6.30 normally, and I was just getting used to the light that was around. So fortunately the, sh- the sun will begin to shine more in the days ahead. Or spiritually, have you ever longed to return to the passion that you had when you were first became a Christian? Or perhaps you've never connected with God and you don't even understand what this passionate relationship is all about. Do you ever feel overwhelmed and exhausted by circumstances? I know that I do. Let's stand right now and I'd like to read the psalm together out loud. Would you stand with me, please? Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God, and all who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Thank you. You can be seated. So how did David respond? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The first five verses show that he had an overwhelming desire for God. He begins with an assertion that 
of his allegiance to who God is. He says, oh God, you are my God. My God is what it was about. Do you ever have those kinds of moments where you recognize the relationship between you and him? Matter of fact, the psalm is full of this relational language here. He focuses on God, not on his problems. God is mentioned 21 times in this passage. 19 times it talks about I and me and my. And only four times it talks about his problems. Interesting perspective. Lots of times our prayers are filled the reverse, where we talk all about our problems and we don't talk about who God is. I find myself guilty of this and have to watch it. How about notice the intensity of the verbs that he uses? Earnestly I seek. He says, I, my soul thirsts, my body longs. Those are intense uh, verbs. The word long is only found once in the Old Testament. It's an all-consuming, passionate desire. What's the most thirsty you have ever been? Ever been so thirsty that your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth? That, That your skin is dry? That you don't know what to do? I once was on a canoe trip, actually. If you ever go across 118 on Anson Creek, I don't know if you know where that is. We decided to go down there one year. Uh, interesting trip. I can tell you more about it if you're interested. But there was beaver dam after beaver dam after beaver dam on that trip. And this was before the time where we purified water very much. So um, um, we didn't want to drink the beaver water. So we were so thirsty. It was a full day after our water bottles disappeared of not having water. And when we finally got to a lake that we trusted, I remember diving into the lake and just drinking and guzzling it. That's becoming thirsty. I don't know if you've ever been thirsty to that point, but that gives you an idea of what it must have been like to live in the wilderness where where David and his people were. In a parched desert, David was thirsty for God. His thirst reminded him of his passionate need for God. In addition to the Bible, there are many books that helped us teach about thirsting. I brought three this morning that I'm just going to quickly introduce to you. This one was given to my mother in 1962 as a, as a present for Menioe, who she was a, um, they worked for years in the tuck shop there. And um, it's written by A.W. Tozer. It's called The Pursuit of God. In 1948, the book was written. And in, six, in the 16th page, on the first chapter that is called Following Hard After God, he says these words. When talking about the Christian life, he states states this. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have become snared in the coils of spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. Incidentally, I had to look up the word spurious because I don't use that very often. It just means counterfeit. Counterfeit logic. Logic that doesn't make sense. We say, well, I've already found God. I don't need him anymore. And that is wrong. We do. Another book that I'd like to introduce you to and my focus this morning is on A.W. Tozer. Not that he was a perfect man because he had many struggles, but there's a many things that he had as far as his passionate um, connection with God. The next one is called Thirsting After God by Keith Price, who spent the last two years of his life driving uh, Tozer around. 
just so Dasha last two years of Tozer's life, driving A.W. Tozer around. Actually, he lived in Toronto. This is when, for those of you who know Toronto, um, Bayview Glen Church was the church that he, he it was before it was called Bayview Glen, and he was, he was there. Let me write a couple of things, and I highly recommend this book if you want to uh, uh, look into this more, in particular the psalm, because I think about half the book is written on this specific psalm. He says, As I write, I can almost hear Dr. Tozer breathing, breathing down my deck. Young man, I don't know how he talked, but young man, just because you found God, that's no reason to stop seeking him. <laughs> Once we begin to really know him, our desire increases more and more. Later on, he says a prayer, and he ends each section with a prayer. And let me read that prayer, because it summarizes and perhaps shows the passion behind it. Oh Lord, forgive me, for I have sometimes treated you as you, if you were a coin I had lost and then found. Having found you, I no longer sought you. Teach me, I pray, that I have but scratched the surface of knowing you. Help me to see the need to go deeper and deeper into your loving heart. Amen. How did David respond? He had an overwhelming desire for God. Not only do we see this thirst for God in these psalms, so in this psalm, we see it in others. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 is the one that I often think about that describes the deer. It says, As the deer pants for the water, uh, for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Wow, what passion. Psalm 143, verse 6 says, I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you in a, a, like, a, first, like a parched land. And personally, my life verse, I don't know whether you have one, I, I do. I, I think someone asked me to have one, but I think about this verse lots. It says, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 27, verse 8. So the Psalms are full of this kind of language. But not only that, there are examples in Scripture that are full of this kind of passionate seeking God. Think of someone like Moses, who was God's chosen leader to lead God's people out of Egypt. God personally called him and spoke to him face to face. Even so, Moses longed to know more of God, to know more of God intimately. Let me read a few verses in this. Moses said to the Lord, You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you. This is Moses' statement. And continue to find favor with you. I've skipped a few verses. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. The glory is all about who God actually is. That was his request. He had this intimate relationship and he wanted to know more. And then the next slide shows, and the, and the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see my face and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. 
What an interesting passage of Scripture. Don't understand the the fullness of exactly what happened there. But I do know that he was seeking deeper connection with God. And we have a glimpse of what that deeper connection of God was like in Moses' life. Pass over to the New Testament. We think of someone like Paul, whose life verse probably could have been summarized in Philippians 3 verse 10. It says, I want to know Christ. Do you think Paul didn't already know him? He wanted to know him deeper. He didn't say that, but that's what he's saying. And the power of his resurrection, knowing that power that's behind there, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, which I don't like when I think about it. I don't want to share in sufferings, but I know that in sufferings, some incredible things happen in my soul. That when I share in the sufferings of Christ and I experience them in my life, I can... I can talk to others in a different way that I could never talk on my own. Becoming like him in his death. Wow. He already knew it, but he wanted deeper knowledge. Or if you're not happy with what I've said about the Old Testament and New Testament, how about looking at the people from church history? And I've given three examples that I'd like to share with you today. The first example is Augustine of Hippo. (laughs) An interesting place in Egypt. Uh, And you can see, 354 to 430, long time ago. Famous for this quote, and if you haven't heard this, you probably will if you read anything in church history. You have made us for yourself, he talks to God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He knew this. Or what about the Scottish preacher who lived in the 1600s called Samuel Rutherford, who said, love nothing for itself only God for himself. Or my favorite poet, who is also um, found extensively in this third book that I would like to share with you, called The Christian Book of Mystical Verse, which is just a collection of uh, poems that express deep connection to God. Frederick William, William Frederick Faber lived in the 1800s, and he wrote, obviously, like the people talked in the 1800s, in particular. And um, I'm going to read, though, the last three stanzas of a, uh, a poem called Desire of God. It's got a little bit of old language, so hang with me in this. Oh, then, wish more for God. Burn more with desire. Covet more the dear sight of His marvelous face. Pray louder. Pray longer for the sweet gift of fire to come down on thy heart with its whirlwinds of grace. <laughs> Passionate guy, maybe? Yes, pine, and pine just means long. Pine for your thy God, fainting soul ever pine. O languish mid all that life brings thee of mirth. Famished, thirsty, and restless, let such life be thine. For what sight is to heaven, desire is to earth. Fascinating, fascinating thought. Last stanza says, For God loves to be longed for. He loves to be sought. Isn't that interesting? He loves, God wants us to seek after Him. He wants us. He loves that. For He sought us Himself with such longing and love. He did it. He reached out to us. He died for desire of us. The desire of what? For connection. For relationship. What a marvelous thought. And He yearns now for us to be with him above, which is our hope. Our hope is not in the earth, it's, in, it's, it's beyond the earth. Can you feel the deep passion of his 
relationship with God, his intense desire. How intense is your desire this morning for God? Are you seeking him with all your heart? Do you thirst to know him better? Do you long to know God in a more intimate way? So how did David respond? And we're spending a lot of time in verse 1 because it's probably the key verse in my thinking. He with an overwhelming desire. We've seen that his allegiance to God is an intensity to, to thirst and long and seek after God. But it goes on, and we're going to finish, and you could follow in your Bibles, or I'm going to be quoting it to read the rest of the psalm and make some observations. Not only did he desire to have a deep desire for God, but he, David remembers the sanctuary. And I've talked about this before. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. He remembers those times that he was in the sanctuary, connecting with God and having special times of prayer. We don't have the temple like we did. We, we have the ability now, though, to speak directly with him face to face. Do you remember those times of prayer when you've connected with God in that kind of way? That's what he was recalling when he was in the middle of a very difficult situation. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, David writes in another psalm. How did David respond? Not only did he have that, you notice in verse 3 and 4, he uses uh, and compares his life to his relationship with God. Because your love, he recognized this, is better than life. Now, it's easy to say these things. But this man was being hunted and was about to be killed by the, 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 his son and his trusted counselor and all those who were with him. His life was in danger. But it says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And I don't know how long that's going to be. And in your name I will lift up my hands. And then verse 5 goes on and talks about David's longings are satisfied in God. Fascinating verse. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. True satisfaction is only found deep relationship with God. The longing leads to satisfaction, which leads to rest which is the next section we'd love to look at. So not only do we see an overwhelming desire for God, but we see a contented rest in God, verses 6 through 8. Notice the words of rest in these words. The first one is resting through God in the night. Night's time is a time that's often troubling for some of us. It's the time when you, I don't know if you ever lie awake and you, Thoughts pop into your mind of the troubles that you're experiencing or the potential troubles. What does he do? On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. (laughs) My guess is that he was up, but he was casting his anxieties. He was throwing it upon God because he knew he could sustain him. Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6, talks about another restless time. He says, I lie down and sleep. This is David speaking. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear ten thousands drawn up against me on every side. He knew it because the Lord sustains him. And then verse 7 talks about singing under God's protection. 
fascinating metaphor is used here. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. The image is of a bird safely in the nest. The mother has its wings over the bird. The bird has nothing to worry about but to sit there and chirp away. Because it knows that it's being protected by its mother. What a wonderful example of trust in the middle of difficult situations. And then verse 8 talks about hanging on to God. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. What's your natural reaction to fear? I tell you, if I we were standing by the edge of the cliff and I bumped you a little bit, <laughs> you would grab for the nearest whatever and cling on to it for all your worth. Because when we're facing the dangers in life, that's when we will cling to whatever we can. I'm here to tell you and remind you that the scriptures say that we can cling to God no matter what we're experiencing. That is comforting. The right hand is a symbol of of power. And we know that we can trust God because He is powerful and His right hand will sustain us. Can you claim that sort of rest in your life? Or are you letting the circumstances around you rob you of that contentment that is possible through God? And now we go into the third section, which is the last three verses. A little bit different, but I'm going to talk to you about, from my perspective, these psalms, we don't understand all these psalms because there's lots of talk about enemies and what happens there, but let me try to put this together. In this last, these last three verses talk about an assured confidence of God's sovereignty over uh, and judgment over his enemies. Uh, The word sovereignty is uh, uh, one of my favorite theological words, and if you don't know the meaning of it, please know it now. It simply means that God is in control. So it may look like that God's not in control. He allows things to happen. We don't understand the depths of why, but God is in control is a principle that's taught all the way through Scripture. And we can trust him as a result. So David recognizes that God is in control in verses 9 and 10. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. This is not because of David's strength, but because of God's. And then in verse 11, David rejoices that God will make things right. But the king will rejoice, he says. Even though he recognizes himself as king, he's in the desert, he's in the middle of nowhere being threatened, but the king will rejoice and all who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So confident is he in the Lord that he can rejoice in the middle of those circumstances. How about, you think of Philippians 4 verse 4. Anyone know what that Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice, regardless of the circumstances. We can and should rejoice in the midst of them. The confidence is not just for the king or for special people. Because it says, all who swear by God's name will praise him. And then it says, well, the mouths of liars will be silenced. What a fascinating way to end the psalm. Again, I'm not a psalm writer. 
And I thought I would have had like a positive at the end. But it's interesting to reflect upon this idea of mouths of liars will be silenced. Recently, I read the book of Job through again, and I'm not sure whether you've ever read the book of Job. If you haven't, I would highly recommend it, although it's a difficult slog in the middle. The first two chapters talk about horrible things happening to Job. Satan comes into into, uh, uh, God's presence, and and God allows him to inflict punishment. uh, uh, I mean, not punishment, but but, um, awful things in Job's life. And all sorts of disasters are experienced by Job, including physically. And he is left pretty much in shambles. And, and then, that's chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 3, for the next 35 chapters to 38, is 35 chapters of him complaining and people giving bad advice. 35 chapters. Do you ever find yourself complaining or giving bad advice? In the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter, the end of the book, there's an interesting thing. Job responds after God reveals himself. And he doesn't ever answer Job. doesn't tell him why. But he talks about who he is and how he's created and how sovereign he is and how amazing he is. And he says over and over again, where were you when I created the world and much else? And at the end, Job 40, verse 4 says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I will put my hand over my mouth. The mouths of liars will be silenced. In comparison to who God is. So in summary, how did David respond? Verses 1 to 5 talks about an overwhelming desire for God. Can we renew our desire for God today? Can you say in your heart that you want to get to know Him more deeply? regardless of where you are at. Let's seek Him with all of our heart. Let's thirst for Him deep within our souls and long for Him more each day. And then verses 6 through 8 talk about that contented rest. As we desire God, we are satisfied and that satisfaction leads to contentment and rest regardless of our situation. Can you experience that rest today? I believe the answer is yes. And then, are you overwhelmed by your circumstances? Because we see in in um, verses 9 to 11, the assured confidence of God's sovereignty and judgment over his enemies. Because if we have this assurance, we can go out in confidence that God is in control of whatever we're going to face. What incredible support that is for us. And we're, whatever we are experiencing now, or might experience in the days ahead. Can you see why this became the morning song of the early church? We're going to end our time by doing again another reading, but we're going to stand together and read a prayer. The prayer is found actually in this book, Thirsting After God, that I've already mentioned. And it's a response to him studying and reading Psalm 63. Now, if you don't want to pray, you don't have to, you can just read it silently, but if you would like to respond positively, I would encourage you to pray with me. I'm going to pray this prayer, 
And I would encourage us all to stand together now and let's pray this prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for preserving this inspiring psalm, giving me a window to see into the heart of your servant, David. His words have expressed the longings of my own heart and challenged me to face up to the shallowness of my commitments to you. But I confess that while I have come before to such crossroads in my life, I have often failed to carry through with the commitments I made. Lord, I don't want this to happen this time. Will you prod me and nudge me at the moment I am in danger of slipping? Make me like David, a person after your own heart. Give me an ever-deepening thirst, a craving that is never satisfied. And teach me that my satisfaction will come from craving itself. Because I know that however well I get to know you, there will always be more of you far beyond my meager comprehension. Amen. You may be seated.